Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with former BAR Technical Director Malcolm Osler. It's all part of a special limited release as we celebrate the return of the Australian Formula One Grand Prix. The broadcaster, the designer and the legend. Will Buxton from Drive to Survive, Malcolm here and Alan Jones. They've all been dropped into the library to coincide with Albert Park and we really hope you enjoy it. Now, if you've arrived at part two of my chat with Malcolm and somehow missed part one, jump back to the Rusty's Garage Library and engage the starter button. From winning Aussie hill climb titles in post F1 life to Formula Ford racing as a young engineer and how he turned heads with very little experience. And you'll get a sense of the fascination he had with almost anything mechanical from a very young age. We begin part two by talking about the success of his F3000 creations and that one he's got a soft spot for. The first car was 88 and it you know, went out and won its first race and won the championship and stuff. But um, at 89, we won it with a Lacey, but really it was a Lacey and Eddie Jordan. It's hard to say. The cars, our car and the Lola were quite different. They had an old-fashioned car with the weight forward. Our, our car had the driver behind the front wheels and had the weight, long wheelbase and the weight, weight, weight rearward. So different circuits that suit our car and different circuits that suit their car, but we weren't really dominating um, until uh, in 1990. We only won four races. Eric Vanderpool won three, and Irvine won one. Mm-hmm. But we we rolled up with this new car in 1991 after a sort of horror year in 1990, and it was the fourth car we that I designed mm-hmm. and uh, the first car we'd done on CAD and sort of a few steps forward with the arrow and what have you. And it was a phenomenal bit of kit. It just won everything. Such a good racing car. So that's that's the car, and then the 90, 92 car actually they changed the rules again, and that we had a bit of an error, a bit of error development to do on that car with a new rule change. But by ninety three we sussed it out. But the, yeah, the ninety one car really stood out. It just rolled up, and uh, with Zanardi and Christian Fittipaldi and um, Tamburini and uh, mm. Nespetti, and just they just won everything. Some of those chassis, correct me if I'm wrong, filtered back to Formula Holden in Australia, and they were a beautiful looking car too, weren't they? Beautiful shape. I think so. <laughs> I, I, was, I was racing against one down at Phillip Island a few weeks ago and the guy said, come up and have a look at this. And I, I walked into the garage and it's this Mark Scaife's old 92 Reynard Ford 3000. I walked in the garage and thought, what a good-looking car, you know. Just, they're beautiful things. <laughs> you mentioned about the IndyCar chapter, which I, um, which I want to get to, but you just sort of sparked a, a thought in my mind here. I mean, the, 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 the rapid change in in the sport in terms of um, technology and development and I guess you never stop learning you know you mentioned CAD before for example and and um, how much do, did you enjoy that side of it and and you know experimenting with with new things because it is when you ultimately got to Formula One it, it is seen as the, the cutting edge of technology the chance to um, to do things that perhaps haven't been done before in that space isn't it yeah, I suppose it's the cutting edge of technology at the time. Yes, uh, you yes. know, Formula One's come, since I stopped doing it, it's just come so far. Even in the you know the following following five or ten years, let alone twenty. Mm. Um, you know, back then we didn't know what we were doing really. And you, I, I tend to look at sort of cars in the nineteen seventies and think you know no one knew what they were doing, which is a bit harsh, but yeah. realistically, I actually well they didn't know, they certainly didn't know what not to do. Um, uh, and then the nineteen eighties developed a little bit more aerodynamic 
understanding and ground effect mm. changed things a lot. But, you know, it was quite common to have cars with the wheels falling off. That, that's no good, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be doing that. No. Brake pedals that snap into and all that sort of carry on. Yeah. Um, but it, goes, it just goes on in leaps and bounds and the, the part of the joy for me was just learning, you know, learning mm. better, just a better and better of understanding of engineering and I, I learned a, a lot obviously in my early years and at Raynard and then with the Formula One team. The thing, was, the thing at Raynard, we never had our own cars. We couldn't go out testing because we didn't have our own cars, didn't have our own team. So you're always on the sort of uh, talking to engineers and drivers about, you know, do you think this might work? Can you test this for us, that thing? Obviously, a Formula One team, you've got the cars, you've got all the data, mm. you've got the drivers, you can you can do some serious analysis and development. So I learned a lot at um, uh, BAR with our, own, with our own crew of people and then went to Jaguar and learned a whole lot more there for some other very intelligent, experienced mm. people. And then, of course, I ended up on the farm building my own cars and having to do it all myself and I learned a whole lot more because I had to, <laughs> had to do it myself rather than rely on the next young bloke to come out of uni to do the stress analysis. It was all down to me. Terrific. We'll get to a couple of those little things that you've identified there because they're great, great parts of your career. Raynard as a company had, you know, had its moments where it had um, some struggles. I mean, you talked about how big it grew before to whatever it was, 300 odd staff. Um, how aware were you of some of the challenges they faced along the way? And did that impact what you were you were doing? I don't know about challenges. When I was there, it just grew and grew and grew. And grew. Mm. honestly, Greg, the Raynard Racing Cars in the 1990s must be some sort of model company. It, everyone mm. was so motivated. We were so successful, loads of money, um, and the quality of everything just went up all the time. The, mm. the quality of the cars went up, the quality of the engineering service, the quality of the spare supply, the quality of the guys in the assembly, you know, the assembly shop guys. We had mm. twice, we had cars go straight from the assembly shop to a race meeting and sit on pole. Crazy. And, and Mespetti actually won the race, you know, he, they, this team, Italian team in 91, bought cars halfway through the season because whatever they were running, Lola's or something, wasn't competitive. Went straight mm. from the assembly shop, straight to winner, put it on pole, won the race, you know, without... Nice. With, and, and we did it again with IndyCar. I think Greg, Greg Moore's transporter went off the road and rolled and destroyed two or three cars and they had a brand new car for, for, uh, for Australia and I think he put it on pole. Maybe it was somewhere else. But, yeah, it's the, the quality of the show was, was phenomenal and the, and the engineering support and you know, all the data the guys had, all the wind tunnel data, technical manuals, mm. technical bulletins. It was, um, it, was a, it was a model company, really. Shame that it disintegrated, to be honest. I, I, I look even now at those... Um, mid '90s indie cars, and and it's a look of a look of love. Am I right in saying that you pretty much led that project from the start? And did the did the mission begin as far back as as 1992, kind of thing? When did it sort of all um, start to to ramp up on the indie car side? Uh, no, 90, 1993. It was um, mm-hmm. it was one of those funny weeks in March um, where Adrian said, "I've got a deal together to do indie car." Obviously, you're doing it. Away you go. Um, <laughs> we, we had a car running in October, but um, the, the so I, I think that was on the Monday, um, mm-hmm. and it was the week before the first race at Service Paradise, and Crazy. all the people I needed to talk to, Cart, who did the rules, Goodyear, yes. did the tyres, Cosworth and Ilmore, they were all on, in Australia. So on, on Wednesday, I was on a plane to Service Paradise to go and to go and see all these people and talk to them about you know what we're planning to do and what information we needed. And they, uh, Adrian managed to uh, hook me up with Jim Hall's team. So they, they were very welcoming and showed me the car and uh, how it all worked and all the crazy systems on it with air jacks and waste gates and weight jackers mm. and 
air equip on these cars like you've never seen. What a mess. We managed to tidy mm. it up, obviously. Did it become, uh, I mean, you know, different demands, but, but when you look at it from your perspective, is it just another just another race car? You just understand the rules and what you can do, and, and, um, or was it a matter of, of understanding the uniqueness of, of that American racing scene in IndyCar? Um, there are some things that took a while to understand, but, I mean, as you said, you know, four, four tyres, one steering wheel, fundamentally mm. the same. But what, what we've always, we always intended to do at Raynard was build a, a car that's mechanically sound, doesn't have any shortcomings, like many silly things on it, and and give it uh, the category's best aerodynamics, and away you go. It worked well at for us. At one point, that it did. It, it, I mean, it really did. Uh, there was, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, the company had a, a technical base in in Indianapolis. So, were you were you commuting? Were you mainly based in the UK? How did you sort of? run things in that regard um, no, based in the UK and used to occasionally go out and do like two consecutive weekend, two consecutive race weekends with a few days testing in the middle but back and forth just across the Atlantic at, at least once a month depending on where the races were I did, but I didn't need to do them all it wasn't like Formula 1 where mm. you got a technical director has got to show up at the track every weekend even though he's got nothing to do um, mm. it's just you know it was pretty tedious in the end hotels racetracks and airports uh, for a living yeah. But there is an Indy 500 win in there, which, I mean, must be um, immensely satisfying in that regard. And who were some of the, the IndyCar drivers that you perhaps got to know over that period as well that people will be, um, will be fascinated I, to I suppose to all of them because we ended up, nearly all of them drove our cars because they were successful. But um, I, I mainly, I worked in the first year with Teo Fabi, who was yep. very fast. Uh, and then a couple of years with Gilles de Ferran. Uh, and then with all of them, really, I didn't, I, I think I spent a fair bit of time with Pac West and Mark Blundell and... I know I did. Mark Lundell and Mauricio Guzman in '97, mm-hmm. I think. But I designed my last car in '97 and '98. They uh, they just carried on with the uh, with the product and had another good year. So by by um, funny, I mentioned the fourth Formula four, Formula Three Thousand car was the one that really dominated and sort of by by '93 in Formula Three Thousand we had the whole grid. Nobody else was making a car like like Delara in Formula Three now. Mm. Um, in fact, the, the teams were saying. Why should we buy 94 cars? We're all happy with our 93 cars. It was a bit of a new thing. Um, but, uh, and the fourth Indy car was the one that just crushed everybody. We just, mm. some, some of the races there, the races there scored down to 12th place. And in some races, we scored all the points. You mentioned before about, um, the, you know, uh, looking at, it, at some of the cars from F3000 and having a bit of a fondness perhaps for, for one of them. What about across all? All of them over your entire career is it is it an IndyCar? Is it one of the the creations in Formula One? Is it an F three thousand machine? Is there one that you just sort of sit back and go in the way you reflected about the Mark Scaife car before? Is there one that you think is you know just you felt at your zenith and the car was an amazing thing? Um, I guess not one, but I, I've got this thing mm. with collections where people have got these huge collections of model cars or beer mugs or two twos or whatever it is, mm. and <laughs> and the thing ends up you know owning the body you know boxes and boxes of this stuff. So just choose your choose your favourite three, and mm. that probably represents the whole collection to you. Really, get rid of the rest. So my, my top three would be the ninety seven at the eighty seven Formula Ford first car I designed, which went out and was very successful. Um, possibly my finest work, and then the the ninety one uh, F F three thousand car, which is a, a game changer. The fourth the fourth three thousand car, and even though later cars were maybe. Better, uh, better gearboxes and you know better aero and stuff. The ninety one car was the, was the was the game changer that dominated. 
And the 97 mm. IndyCar, the fourth IndyCar, was just phenomenal bit of kit. It was just like the 91 3000 car. It's just the same thing. Pop, go out into the track, two little changes. It was dialed in. It was fast. It was reliable. Great, you know, great in a race. Very, very race worthy. So those three, they're my top three. Very cool recollections, mate. At some point here, late 90s, Formula One um, beckons or a, a door opens there. What was originally Tyrrell becomes British American Racing. How much of a of a step was this in terms of workload, staffing, stress and so on? And just give me the, if you can, share with the audience the the phone call or the, the moment, you know, people walked into your office and said, right, this is this is what we're embarking yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, it, um, well, it kicked off at the end of eight, end of 97. So we've just done the, the, the um, well, d- done the, the, the ground, uh, the, the dominant Indy car and design, I'd already designed the 98 car. Um, mm. So in, in December, November um, 1997, Adrian said, we've got this deal together, Craig Pollock's put this deal together to go into Formula One and make a new team with... Um, British American Tobacco as one partner, um, Pollock Villeneuve as a second partner, and Raynard as a technical partner. So mm. the, the team was inaugurated inaugurated at the beginning of December 1997 with um, three directors and one employee. I was the employee. Employee. <laughs> and we, yeah. and we went from there, sort of hiring people. We, you know, some. Unfortunately, we didn't get the best out of Tyrrell. We got some great people out of Tyrrell, but um, Harvey Postlethwaite was was doing a bit of moonlighting, setting up a team for Honda at the same time. So he mm. grabbed all his favourite people and whizzed them off there. But uh, <laughs> it, that was just uh, uh, just part of the madness. Um, so, yeah, starting the front team from scratch, reasonable job. But we, we managed to get to the grid. It only just managed to get to the grid at the beginning of 99 with the car. And we had a shocking year in 99. We didn't um, score a single point. I could tell you some stories about why we should have and didn't or, or, or shouldn't have and didn't. Um, which were close, you, but uh, you can tell us, share the the, the worst one. The, the the we walked into it, we came into it, and Craig did this deal to have um, the Renault engine, which um, for for historical reasons had this funny firing order and this horrendous level of vibration, and all sorts of things used to just explode. They'd be they'd be sitting on the car. You you put a taillight in the thing. And just say goodbye to it because you knew when it came back in, it'd be in pieces hanging off the back of the car. <laughs> it was horrific. Um, anyway, so we made, made the reliability thing very challenging. But uh, we had this little tiny four-inch sax clutch, which mm. um, when we first ran it, it fell apart because of the torsional vibrations in the on the Renault crank. But they they beefed it up mm. and we got it working. But Villeneuve hated it. He'd uh, he'd only done one really good start with it, and we're getting towards the sort of latter part of the season. And uh, he said, I really, you know, I really just need a better clutch to be able to get off the line. And at that stage of the game, um, most of the cars are, are pretty reliable and you're not going to sort of luck into a lucky result. You've got to, you've got to you know, be strong. So we did this, put an AP clutch in the thing, four-and-a-half-inch clutch or five-inch clutch, whatever it was, more conventional thing um, for Nürburgring and did some testing with it at Santa Pod and ran it here and there and tried to do all the right things. Um, went to Nürburgring and uh, it rained in the race. And Villeneuve was never very good in the rain. He sort of dropped back a bit, but he and he spun at the chicane. But he managed to keep going, and people were going off the track, left, right, and centre. And there he was at uh, in fifth place with five laps to go, um, going past the start finish line. And there's this big explosion and a ball of flame from the back of the car, and this oh. bloody clutch exploded. <laughs> so we broke we broke all the rules about reliability, you know, our own rules about reliability, introducing proven parts to put this clutch in the car. Uh, $20 million. So Tyrrell hadn't scored a single point the previous year. If you don't score points for two years, you hop off the 
off the $10 million distribution, whatever it is that the, the top 10 teams get. So it took us out of uh, out of that $10 million for that year and the next year. So, 20, yeah, that exploded clutch. The two points that we're sitting on with five laps to go was $20 million cost. Wild oh, things like reaching. that. And then put the Honda engine at the end of the year, which didn't vibrate, and went out and did a race distance the first time it ran the car. It was just the difference was staggering. Hmm. Tell, tell people, if you can... A, a little of your your world back at the at the factory. So, are you are you designing and operating on your own? You've got a team of people. Are you? Are you what are the influences and and so on in this process for you? Oh, I, well, I started off as chief designer, um, and Adrian was technical director, but really he was otherwise engaged with Reynard trying to float the company and do other things. So, I, I was always going to do Adrian's job in spite of the lack of title. But eventually, they gave me that title because um, hmm. they couldn't really have a, an absent technical director. Um, mm. So that became my job, and I, I, I designed a wishbone or something rather for the first car. That was it, and a few sketches. But but I was on top of the wind tunnel testing and sitting basically in the, with the design office, um, and, and obviously R and D and the race engineers and the race team to a certain extent. So technical director, you're responsible for everything, and it basically ends up being everything that goes wrong. So <laughs> so a lot of the stuff I wasn't involved in until it broke, and then like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Which which became not yeah, not very interesting really. And the other thing that was mm. very time-consuming, we, we had Honda engines and uh, Honda were also technically very interested in Formula 1 aside from the engine. They had a, they had a chassis program. Mm. They were spending $100 million a year on I'm not sure what. They, they didn't know themselves um, on what their objective was. I did ask them. They weren't, they weren't sure why they were doing it, but they were spending $100 million mm. a year on they, they had built this Formula 1 car with Harvey Possesway, as I said. Mm. Uh, but they had seven, nine poster rigs and a wind tunnel programmer and all this, everything sort of piggybacked onto what we were doing, trying to mm. understand what went on. And I, I, I say, I don't know what they were trying to do. But um, <laughs> but that needed dealing with. That, that, you know, te- Honda technical meetings and their, all their uh, developments and proposals. And so that was, that was quite a lot of work, actually. The Honda side of it was a, was a project mm. in itself. Almost like a third of my time went into Honda, Honda work, Honda extra work. Mm. Um, and, mm. yeah. Dealing with, we, we had a we had a terrible year in '99. We, we took us to the last race to finish both cars. When we rolled out and, and we're like fourth and sixth or something in the first race in Australia in 2000. Uh, fan, fantastic year. Um, we finished equal points with Renault, uh, um, so we were fifth. They they were fourth because they they jagged our second place in Canada, which we were sitting on before the race engineer decided to go for glory rather than points <laughs> and put wets on the car, put dry, dry tyres on the car in the rain. Anyway, um, but, yeah, we're, we're a, on, on today's point scoring system, we'd be a solid fourth, which is a f- phenomenal and totally under-recognised achievement for second year in Formula 1. OK, we had Jacques Villeneuve, but he's not the only one who can drive. Um, mm. uh, and go out and finish fourth in the championship. No-one's done that. Now, not Toyota, no-one's no done that since. And then uh, even you know, like even when UE went to Red Bull, they you know they, they didn't go out winning straight away, and neither did we. And then uh, then a tough year in two thousand and one with some challenges, which are probably aerodynamic, but uh, we may never know. Uh, we had two podiums, like lucky podiums. We had two podiums, finished fifth in the championship. Uh, change of management at the end of that year, and I got sent home because they didn't think they needed. We we just employed. Um, I said, you know, Jeff Willis to give me a hand and the new management fell in love with Jeff and sent me home, which was a fantastic thing. Uh, a few months off and then um, 18 months at Jaguar with Mark Webber and co. A 
any predictions for the F1 World Championship? Ferrari is looking insanely fast. Red Bull is up there. It's got to be between those two, I can't really see anyone else getting close to be honest. Motor racing can be politically charged, right? I mean, how draining was it at the end there in that changeover that you talked about? I mean, and, and the sport is, as has often been said, Malcolm, it's a piranha club, isn't it? I mean, you, you probably just wanted to focus on the stuff uh, that you do about making cars go faster, better, and, you know, trying to score points and win and so on. But was the other stuff um, in your space and was that something that was that was draining? Yeah, it became it, when when I when I was sent home in in March mm. twenty two thousand two or whatever it was. It was just like ugh, they, they were going. There was it was called Black Friday. I think they sent seventy seven people home, including me. Um, it was just a great relief. Like I I wasn't having any fun. I was getting well mm. paid, but I wasn't having any fun at all. I wasn't doing any creation, anything creative, no engineering. It was just dealing with crap, really. Um, mm. But two things I. Um, I'd employed hundreds of people and they were, mm. I was really, in all due modesty, I was the only sensible person in the management to, to provide any leadership <laughs> to, you know, where we were going and what, was, what we were trying to deliver. And I couldn't turn around and go, oh, I've had enough of this, see you later, boys, you know, with all these people mm. who are looking to me for leadership and deliverance. And uh, there's that. And I was getting quite well paid, Greg, and I just, I'd be driving to work thinking, I don't need this shit. But if I... <laughs> You know, because I, I knew what I was going to face, you know, arguments with the race mm. engineers about who was crap and who wasn't crap and what should be done about it. And um, uh, But I thought if I can just hang on for another six months, it's probably six, six years earlier I can retire because, oh, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't have that money for much of your career. And so getting sent home was this massive blessing. I went home and built a hot rod in, the, in my garage. I had a wonderful time. What'd you, what'd you build? Uh, it was sort of scrapyard challenge with an XJS. I bought an XJS for 400 quid. I was, <laughs> I was, I was sitting in a meeting, some Honda meeting, uh, board as usual, and I and I drew this Jag V12 engine pot rod, you know, with a you know Jag V12's got the lovely long yeah. single cam yeah. cover, with twelve pipes going down into it, and twelve pipes coming out the bottom, and a thirty-two forward hot rod built around that that concept of the engine, and it just wow. it, this is what happens to me. These things get stuck in my head. So uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that. I, I got I got a drawing board at home and drew up the chassis and well. well Bought an XJS for four hundred quid, pulled it apart, measured it all, drew up this um, space frame chassis to go around it, and the fiberglass thirty-two Ford roadster body, and built this hot rod. You, in, this, in England, you could do all that stuff. You just build it and mm. get an old old Ford logbook and get it registered, and where you go. You mentioned a couple of drivers here because we're getting to the Jaguar chapter. You mentioned uh, Jacques Villeneuve. I think I've, um, Ricardo Zonta was there in that period too, wasn't he? With BAR, what, what were those guys like to? What were they like to work with? Uh, Villeneuve, good at first, he became quite difficult. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, strange, strange bloke, strange bloke, strange guy. Very strange uh, attitude and appraisal of the human race. He had, he had total disdain, really, for most humans on the planet. They're all morons. And uh, he had no no idea really of how to interact with them and how to get the best out of thing. So opening he's opening uh, Salvo. We go to the first test down at Barcelona with this car that everyone's worked twelve months like busting their balls to get this car built. Going into Barcelona and it's quite it was quite fast for the first time out. And uh, so his, his his note to the press was um, yeah things are going okay uh, whatever uh, quite promising. Everyone at the tracks working really hard and I hope they are at the factory as well. And like, 
really? Like, are you that out of touch? Don't everyone just about like just about down tools? Like, we've been killing ourselves to get this guy. You mean you, you have no idea whether anyone's doing any work or not, or how hard they're trying? I hope they are at the factory as well. Just that, and it went on from there. Just no concept. Uh, so yeah, funny. Diff, not, not, not to build a team around Jack Villeneuve is is a incredible oxymoron. Sort of. What was it like to work with Mark Webber? And how did that, I mean, you touched on Jaguar before. How did that opportunity, how did that come to pass? Yeah, so I was, I was at home um, building my hot rod and Jaguar, as you know, was a very sort of volatile thing. They, they, uh, the technical, when I went there, when I turned up there, they, the guys in the drawing office told me the, uh, the, the technical director's office in the corner of the drawing office was called the departure lounge. They <laughs> <laughs> used to make jokes about the rotating door at the front of the factory and this sort of thing, but... They'd been through quite a few changes. And, uh, anyway, I went there and they were actually leaderless. They had no one in charge. But what, what had happened, Nicky um, Louder was running it and Ford, Ford had bought Jaguar and PI, the, the electronics company, mm. and Cosworth as their sort of premium products division. And it, the, the Formula One dream wasn't working out, to be honest. Uh, and they commissioned Tony Pennell, who was in, in, who owned PI, mm. to look into it, do it, do it like a management consultant type job on should we should we be in Formula One, and how do we fix our our program? And uh, so he he did that for Ford and recommended they did stay in Formula One, and they said to him, "Can you fix it, please?" So he and I knew Tony quite well from all the F three thousand and mm. and IndyCar and and wind tunnel stuff. They supplied our wind tunnel software. And uh, obviously he had some respect for me and he said, would you be interested in, in working for Jaguar? And I said, well, I, I'm sure I can help them. I know a lot of stuff that I can that would be a benefit to them, but I don't want the big job. I don't want to be technical director because that sucks. Mm. Um, so I went along there as three days a week as a consultant just to give them some leadership and tie things together and had a great time. It was such a different environment, just people, good people working in this atmosphere of mutual respect. It was such, so refreshing after all the... Mm. Infighting and backbiting and stuff at, uh, at the other place, um, and so when when they had the, when Nikki was shown the rotating door and Dave Pitchforth and Co came in, they wanted me to stay, but I, I couldn't really be chief engineer as a three day a week consultant. So um, I, I wrote down what what I considered to be acceptable working conditions, <laughs> which, uh, not much money and not much time, um, and stayed. Had a f- fantastic time with them in two thousand and three with Weber. Mm. Uh, but then by 2004, I sort of it just it was sort of became you know Jack Ford didn't know what they wanted they wanted to sell it because mm. um, they were selling it. Mark was heading on somewhere else, and that, it was just it, it became very um, it became a bit Ford Motor Company near the end, and it was just sort of driving cars around in circles. It didn't seem to matter. So I thought, now's the time to leave. Leave. So I pulled the pin, bought a farm, and and literally that was the the conclusion of the the F1 chapter. Just a couple of quick reflections as we we get to that. Nicky Lauda, um, sadly, he's he's left us now. Um, legend of the game. Did you have much in the way of dealings with him, and and uh, what was he like? Um, not a lot. Mm. And I guess we shouldn't speak of the dead, really. But I don't think he took the job that seriously. Okay. He uh, he. Uh, one little story that probably tells you enough is, um, you know, he's in the big office with the big mahogany table that Bobby Rahal and everybody else has sat at, and. Uh, his very, very serious professional PA used to put stuff in his in-tray. So he'd come into, come into the office, you know, two days a week or once every two weeks or whatever. But nothing ever came out. Nothing ever. <laughs> the, the in-tray. It just um, kept growing, nothing, did it? <laughs> well, I don't, well, it didn't seem to keep growing, but she went in there one day and the, the in-tray, she found the in-tray just got emptied into the bin. 
without, without being looked at, just got straight in the bin. And he used to read Autosport and talk to his mates on the phone all day and turn up at Grand Prix and have a bit of a chit, you know, have yeah. a, make a few statements. So, yeah, he didn't take the job all that seriously. So um, good for Nicky, you know. Did, did you get a window into the determination of, of Mark Webber? He would go on to win nine GPs, two Monacos and, and so on. But at that stage... You know, climbing the ladder had come from Minardi to you guys before going to Williams, and then and then ultimately on to to Red Bull. What was he like at, at that stage of life? I guess I guess the determination is a given. If mm. you want to be a you know if you can be racing Formula One, you've got to be determined. It's like, but but the thing that stood out with Mark is just what you, what a good straightforward and honest bloke he was, and uh, and you know gathered people around him who wanted to be part of his party and make it all work. Very mm. motivating for the team. Yeah, and uh, you know, gave them good credit and good feedback, and everyone loved him. You may not think this way, but is there a little part of you that sort of goes, you know what? What ultimately um, BAR more or less started with has ended up with, I think, if I've got the lineage right, um, you know, Ross Braun, Jensen Button winning a crown, and the and the foundations of what is now the the ultra dominant Mercedes team, and then. The same more or less for Jaguar, which I think ultimately ended up as as the the um, beginnings of Red Bull, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now Red, Red Bull bought it from mm. Ford. Yeah, but I mean, that's I, I was chief engineer there for eighteen months. I don't think I don't, and I I did a lot of good there. It was mm. the place was um, in total disarray when I arrived, and I I um I installed a lot of uh, uh, communication channels and and. And uh, systems and procedures and do, doing the the, the interest uh, the fundamentals of doing things properly there, hmm. a lot of which carried on into Red Bull, but you know not 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 beyond Adrian Newey. Hmm. So uh, no, it's nice to it's it's an anecdotal thing really. I, I worked at uh, I was the last chief engineer at Jaguar and I we set up BAR, which became BAR Honda, which became Honda, which became Braun, which became Mercedes, but. Someone's still using my office, but that's about it, really. And there are still people there from day one. Hmm. So you you call time, and was there ever a, a moment of uh, second thought on that? And were there ever phone calls shortly thereafter where you were tempted by someone else to go back? Did you get overtures? Uh, not not for a Formula One job. You know, various things people wanted me to do, but I wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. The the um, I guess the the wrap on the whole thing was. I went down to the Grand Prix just for a social call mm. at the beginning of some year or other, 2004 maybe, you know, mm. four or five, 2006 I think. Yep. To and Albert the, Park, the, you mean? Yeah, yep. and, the, and the BAR Honda thing was working quite well by then and Jensen was on pole. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the farm wasn't going that well with drought and cattle and what have you. So anyway, went down, went down there just to pop in with a, with a hard card and cruise around the pits and see some old faces and catch up with people. And... Uh, and Jensen, um, Jensen was on pole in the in the Honda, and I thought in the BA Honda, I thought this, this is pretty cool, really. And there's something here that I missed, to be honest, because it's quite glitzy and glamorous and mm. quite good fun. And it's like great engineering toys and good people and everything else. Anyway, so um, that was sort of Friday or Saturday. We headed back home, and I was home on Sunday and watching the thing on TV. And Jensen takes off from pole and steadily drops back through the field and eventually he's battling with someone for fifth place and three corners to go, the engine explodes and this big ball yeah. of fire. And mm, <laughs> so big bubble. I, mm. I remember this. This is shit. <laughs> and, oh. and I was like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and I couldn't go back, but there was something I was missing, but that cured me completely. Did it. And, uh, and the best thing was when the race was over, I switched the telly off and went out in the shed. There was no, no false meeting, no flying back to England and all that sort of carry on. So, no, to- totally cured, mate, totally cured, no okay. interest at all. 
Well done. Let's let's power to the finish here with um, with a few, if we can. Firstly, we, we Malcolm, we often get aspiring engineers, budding race mechanics, and so on, listening that may perhaps dream of of doing that that chapter in in Europe or England or maybe even America, for example. If they were pursuing a a career internationally in in motorsport on that side of the pit wall, what sort of advice would you would you give them? Uh, study aero, aer- aeronautical engineering rather mm-hmm. than mechanical. Mm-hmm. Because really you don't need to know much about coal-fired power stations when you're going to be a racing car designer, <laughs> um, which is all, you know, me- mechanical is very broad. Mm. Um, aero, obviously the aero element to F1 is, is very high and the, the structures and the vehicle dynamics are, are relevant, much better degree to do. And I suppose in some parts of the world you can do a racing car degree now if you want to go to England. Mm. I don't have to do one here at all. Um, do that and get your hands dirty. You know, I used, to, I used to get hundreds of CVs across my desk every year for people wanting jobs. Mm. And... Surprise, surprise, they've all been to school and most of them have got a degree of some sort. What stands you apart? That's the guy who's raced a sports sedan in Australia or built his own go-kart. Or yeah. I used to give a job to anyone who could weld. Did you? Yeah, if you can, if you can weld, that's it, you're hands-on. You know, if you, if you, <laughs> it shows you, you know how things work. You're on the coalface and you're you know, interested in building stuff. Yeah. Pre-COVID, I reckon you and I caught up in New Zealand and – You'd rekindled a bit of love for Formula Ford, and I think, if memory serves, you and Adrian Reynard raced there together, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of. Have you ever heard of a bloke called Bill Stone? He was Bill. Bill Stone's his Kiwi that actually put Adrian into business back in the seventies. Wow. Um, and went back to New Zealand eventually, and we we, we became quite close friends. And uh, Bill invited us over there for a for a race. Bill subsequently passed away, but we used to go back there as a bit of a Billstone memorial to go and uh, do a bit of Formula Fording in his honour. Nice. And we ended up, Adrian got invited to race, I don't know if it was a, it might have been a bit of a Reinhardt 50th year or something, I don't know. He was there and, and someone scrounged up this this beaten up old Lola for me, which I don't think it had been out of the shed for about 10 years. Where, where we had it parked, it looked like someone had just serviced an old Land Rover. It was all rusty water and oil over the ground. But we managed to sort it out and get it running. And we had a great weekend thrashing around Hampton Downs. You underrate yourself. If I recall, you hustled very, very well in that car. Now, when you and I last did something TV interview orientated, it was actually for some Shannon's video content, as I recall, and you wore thongs. Now, you're probably even in a pair of them now as I, as I talk to you, um, but people listening can actually find you on YouTube mucking around in your thongs doing a bit of bit of engineering yeah. talk, can't they? Yeah, one, actually, one of the funny thing, one of the first things that went on there mm. was um, a video about starting up this old Simpica Vedette engine, which yeah. hadn't run for 20 years. And I got it all, the camera set up, got it all ready to go, came in the house for lunch or whatever. And now we've got an old farmhouse with a, with a solid timber floor, which is only like 20 mil thick, and it's really cold in winter. Yeah. So I put a pair of slippers on. I wear slippers in the house. Went back out in the shed, finished the video in slippers. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody commented on the old V8 firing off the first time. Everybody wanted to talk about well, everybody Slippers. wanted to talk about my footwear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! So now you're a YouTuber. Um, uh, how are you finding sort of that? I, I, I sense when I look at some of that stuff, you just be you basically, don't you? With that stuff, no point trying to be anybody else. No, <laughs> no point trying to be Greg Rust. No, um, well, there's no one should be doing that. What, what I do want to get to is some of the cool. Uh, little creations you've got one that that grabbed my attention you've been working on a two-wheel project as well is it a mercury two-stroke v6 outboard boat engine in that thing what is that that is uh you know i was talking about the the 
XJS hot rod in England. <laughs> yes, this is it's the two wheel version problem. of that. <laughs> yeah, so, no, same problem. I get these ideas in my head. That, um, ooh, that'd be cool. And you can't you can't shake the idea without actually creating the thing. But I two stroke outboards. Like you look at that little little um, letterbox on top of the outboard and think this yeah, is is a two and a half liter two stroke V six in there that makes two hundred horsepower. How cool is that? And <laughs> as we know, everyone with a soul loves a two stroke. Yes. Um, and I thought, well, there's got to be a way of putting one in a motorbike, and eventually there's enough gaps between the other projects that I found one on the fence down at, down at Marimbida at the, at the outboard shop with a, something broken in it yeah. and uh, took it home, pulled it apart and designed a motorbike around it. So it's, uh, I put the pistons back in it yesterday, Greg. Wow. So is the goal with this, uh, I don't know where, you, where you're taking it other than uh, maybe just building it but, it, but, I mean, is there a want to see it at Bonneville on the salt flats or something? No. Where, what are you doing with this? I just want to see what it sounds like. Do you? <laughs> I don't actually hear what it sounds like. No, it's um, the, the, the goal with these things, I, I built a hot rod here in, uh, in Australia, which, was, which I regret selling, but um, the goal with them is to get them registered, okay. which certifies them as a part of society, really. Yes. It, you know, you can build all sorts of crazy stuff and have it on the, on the wall of your shed, but having it registered means someone else can use it, for instance. Hmm. So, uh, so it's built, the, the, the outboard motorbike, as it's called, is based on an old 85 Suzuki. So it only has to comply with the 80, 1985 ADRs. Okay. So it doesn't have emissions rules and various, you know, immobilizers and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, have it registered, ride it, it'll be cool. It'll go ring, ding, 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 <laughs> somewhere or other. <laughs> Down the street and blows blue smoke everywhere. And then when I've, when I've got it all sorted out, once I've got, like the, the V8 bike I got out the back there with a the vedette motor. Yep. I rode it yet for the second time in 12 months yesterday to take it out of one shed and put it in the other shed. Once once it's all sorted out, I just put them in the shed and get on with the next thing. It's a bit sad, really. I should enjoy can, my toys more. Can you give us a quick overview then? You've gone there with one of the other um, bikes. What else is in the, the garage? Uh, there's a 650 V-Strom. There's a Suzuki um, two-wheeler. Mm-hmm. There's an old 1973 Alpha Spider, the car I wanted when I was 21. Fantastic. Which I, which I also don't drive. Uh, the uh, the V eight the V bikes there, which is a nineteen seventies BMW with a two and a half litre Simca Vedette side valve V eight, which is a lovely thing, lovely thing to ride. Gosh, it's nice. Um, uh, Mister Juicy's there, John Smith's RT one. Yep. Um, I've got Kevin. But this this thing isn't mine, but it's Kevin Bartlett's first Formula five thousand car sitting in there, which you may or may not be aware of. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's, I've driven it a bit. It's fun. It's like truck racing, but it's quite nice. Um, and I've got the little dart that I built, which is all over YouTube, the, uh, the Ninja Mobile dart. That's cool. We encourage people to go on YouTube and, uh, and have a closer look at that. You're a proud dad. I think you've got daughters from memory. Do they, they love what you've done, the, what you've achieved along the way, or, or are you, like I'm the sort of daggy dad with my girls, are you sort of the nutty professor? How do they feel about what dad's achieved over time? It's funny. The, the best thing the best thing has happened for my um, daughter's appreciation of my career is um, is that Netflix, YouTube, whatever it is, the that, drive that to survive. Off, yeah, yeah, changed your so world. That and all, <laughs> that's, and all of a sudden, after twenty years, start asking me questions that's cool. about Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> Having shown no interest, you know, when I was in the house and heading off to Grand Prix, they no interest in it at all. They wanted to ride their ponies and what have you. Brilliant. What's next for you? I mean, you're in clearly enjoying tinkering in the shed. You've talked about ticking the, the hill climb box and, and, you know, winning five Australian titles, which I think is tremendous. And you, your world's come full circle as far as, you know, starting out with a, a, a bit of racing, studying and engineering, blending it all to, together and working successfully in Europe for all those years and then coming back to steer a bit more. Are there more 
little racing plans or what's in the pipeline? I guess I'm 63 this month. I'm trying not to make myself too busy. That's my disease. I sort of take on too much. And like, oh, there's a race meeting here. I'll take the 5,000 car. And then the week after, we'll get the get the Mr. Juicy up to whatever, Malala or something. Like and then I'm going cycling with my wife in Adelaide for a week. And when we get back, you know, we're off to England for, for two months. And really? I just need to sort of put the brakes on a little bit, really, and just act my age, I think. It's probably a good idea. <laughs> and are you juggling things around the farm in a work sense as well? What are you doing there? I'm a I'm a serious work dodger when it comes to the farm. We've got to... <laughs> I, I was never a good farmer. Now I'm a terrible farmer. But um, yeah, I, got, I do I do sort of on an as, on an ad's needs basis. When the water pump down at the creek stops working, I go and fix it. But I don't go and play with it for fun. I got some fences I need to put back up where the termites have eaten the posts. But no, we've, we're, I keep shrinking the farm. I started off with 110 hectares, and now I'm on 10. Okay, and two sheds. So. Uh, that's it. Yeah, not, not much farming goes on here, really. Congratulations on, on a great career, Malcolm. I mean, um, great inspiration for those that um, would like to potentially follow in your, in your footsteps, um, you know, taking the punt um, from a pure love of, of engines and things that clearly got you at a very young age and it took you all the way to um, the top and, and it's been a joy to to walk back over some aspects i'm sure there'll be a you know um even more things that you you put your moniker on um over time but you should be enormously proud mate some very very big boxes ticked there yeah great uh, great oh yeah I, I after i came back here and went farming i sort of was in denial about it all for a while and it took me probably five years or so to actually appreciate and celebrate what i'd achieved over there because it is you know I, when i when i left jaguar um when i re- retired from motor racing resigned from motor racing whatever um Dave Pitchforth, the MD at the time, said, you know, you know best what, what your career's all about. Can you write your own obituary? So I, I did. I, you know, for the press release, I wrote down what I'd achieved in my career. It's bloody amazing when I really? actually wrote it down. You know, three, two out of three Indy 5, or two wins in a second out of three Indy 500s. And I don't know how many times he won, won the 3000 Championship and the IndyCar Championship. And, uh, you know, I know, we, I know we had a party at some stage of the game. It ran out in 97 or something for our 50th race win. And it went on from there for another few years. Um, and, you know, the, I've, I've spoken about the F1 achievements. It's really, for a, for a bloke, you know, mucking around and he's with, with scooters and lawnmowers in, uh, in Warunga, getting bits from the tip to create, to create stuff to ride up and down the paddock. It's, um, it's a long way. But I went to England with, no, with Europe with no plan. The only plan I had was to ride my pushbike around. And it's just the, the opportunities were there and I took them and there was, they worked out well. So you got the next opportunity and do the right thing. Well done, was, mate. Uh, yeah, great time. Well done, and we hope you get to do that lap of Europe on the bike at some stage. You, you, that's the only thing you didn't tick, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hopefully I'll be doing a month over there on a motorbike at the end of the year, or a little bit later in the year. Terrific. Thanks for sp- spending some time with us. It's been wonderful to catch up, Malcolm. Pleasure. Fun to reminisce, to be honest. Yeah, it's really good. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Listener.